have one promise I need to fulfill to my kids before we start here. So, uh, king for a day, that's me. One day a year. I hope your uh, family has been as good to uh, you fathers out here as my family has been to me today. We uh, joke about this in staff meeting, but uh, Mother's Day outside of Easter usually is the day in which we have the most people here. And Father's Day is usually the day in which we have the least people here. Mother's Day, Mom says, let's all go to church. Dad's Day says, uh, let's all go to the beach or let me sleep in or something like that. So I uh, extend my congratulations to all of you fathers who have uh, dragged your families here this morning. Turn to John chapter 5, if you will. We want to look at the uh, end of uh, John 5, starting in verses 31 and going through uh, verse 47. Perhaps you've been delighted, as I have, to see Perry Mason return uh, to TV. I, my wife and I watched the latest Perry Mason movie the, uh, the other night. I did miss Hamilton Burger, I must confess that. But that was one of my favorite TV shows growing up. And, of course, as you're well aware, a very familiar plot line, but always the key issue in a Perry Mason, a Perry Mason episode is tracking down some witness who will be able to establish the truth about the case that's involved some witness who will come forward in the courtroom and declare the truth so that the guilt or the innocence of the parties involved can be established. Now that's the sort of background, a legal courtroom background, is the background of this uh, section. If you just glance through this section, you will see that the word witness or bear witness or testimony, that words like that occur about ten times in this little passage. And so what this passage is concerned with then are those who bear witness to the identity of Jesus Christ, those who testify to his identity as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Deliverer, as the Son of God. If someone were to ask you tomorrow at work, why is it that you believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Why do you believe such superstition? You have an answer for them because you can... Remind them of the very things that Jesus says in this passage. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are asking that question. Why should I believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Again, the words of Jesus in this passage give us a clear answer. What Jesus does is bring before us four witnesses to his identity as the Son of God. Four witnesses who corroborate his own testimony that he is exactly who he claims to be. So I would like to examine with you the testimony of these four witnesses, and hopefully by the end of our time together we will each reach a verdict. Now Jesus begins in verse 31 by indicating that he is the first of these four witnesses, and yet he says a very striking thing. Verse 31, If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. That's a rather striking statement. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. Now, clearly what Jesus means by that is, is not that he is telling a lie about himself, but what he is saying to us that his own testimony about himself is not admissible. It's uh, not sufficient to secure a conviction. Uh, it's not valid in court. Now, what Jesus is thinking of here is the Jewish legal system, and embedded in that Jewish legal system was the concept that every fact had to be established by a minimum of two or three witnesses. 
Under Jewish law, a man could not suffer capital punishment, for instance, simply on the basis of circumstantial evidence or the eyewitness testimony of one witness. His testimony had to be corroborated by at least one or two other witnesses in order for the truth of the matter to be established. Jesus is saying the same thing to us here. Don't simply take my word for it, Jesus says, because if I am the only one saying these things about myself, then I wouldn't blame you if you dismissed my claims. That unless what I say about myself is corroborated by independent witnesses who have come to their conclusion about my identity completely independently of my own efforts to persuade them, then don't believe what I say about myself. Don't simply take my word for it, because if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. It's not valid. It's not sufficient to secure a conviction. So one of the reasons that we believe Jesus is who he is is because he claimed it, but that is not sufficient. There must be more. Now, by the way, there are some implications of this in personal life. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, for instance, that a church must not accept an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Occasionally, some member of the fellowship will have uh, develop a real burr under his saddle about some member of the staff or some member of the elder council and will make some rather serious charges about that individual. Now, Paul says you pay no attention to that sort of thing unless two or three people independently of one another are saying the same things and coming to the same conclusions. Now, if two or three people independently of one another are saying the same things about an elder or a staff man, then it establishes that there is some truth to it, and you must look into it. Likewise, if people come to us and uh, confront us or rebuke us about some personal area of life, and if they alone are the ones that say this, then we ought to listen and take it under advisement. But if one or two others independently of this first person come to us and say the same things about us, point out a similar concern, then it establishes, you can take it to the bank, that there's something there that you need to deal with. And that's the basis on which Jesus approaches this issue. Don't pay any attention to what I say unless it's corroborated by others. Now, I believe starting in verse 32 then, Jesus brings forward into the witness box three corroborating witnesses, three uh, witnesses that establish and confirm his own testimony about himself. The first one is John the Baptist. If you look in verse 32, you will see that the he, if you have a New American Standard, the he at the end of the verse is capitalized. Obviously, the New American Standard translators understanding this to be a reference to God the Father, but I think clearly it's a reference to uh, John the Baptist and therefore should not be capitalized. As you're aware, there's no way from the Greek text to tell whether it should be capitalized or not. So this is what Jesus says about John the Baptist. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears, he that is John the Baptist, which he bears of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. But the witness which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So Jesus says the second witness to my identity is John the Baptist. He, independently of any effort on my part to persuade him, came to the same conclusion about who I am. In fact, remember that John the Baptist grew up with Jesus. They were relatives. They grew up together. And yet John did not know that Jesus was the Messiah until the Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism. 
And that's when John realized who he was dealing with. He recognized that Jesus was more righteous than he was. That's why he told Jesus when Jesus approached him, I ought to be baptized by you rather than the other way around. But he didn't at that point know that Jesus was the Messiah. The Spirit convinced him of that. So Jesus says, you can trust his testimony. The testimony that he bears of me is true. Now, what did John the Baptist say about me? Well, he said that I am the coming Lord, the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament. He said that I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist said that I am the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit and gives men new power and adequacy and sufficiency for life. And John says that uh, John the Baptist said that I am the Son of God. And his testimony is true. I didn't talk him into that point of view. The Spirit of God revealed that to him. Now, Jesus goes on to say in verse 34 that even though his testimony is true, the testimony which I receive is not from man. And I think what Jesus means by that is I am not dependent upon the testimony of John the Baptist. What he spoke is the truth, but the testimony which I receive, which I depend on, which I am counting on, is not from man, be it John the Baptist or anyone else. Now, he says, I remind you of what John the Baptist said because he spoke the truth. And I know there are some in my audience, he says, some who are listening to me who still have a great respect for John. And I am reminding you of what he said about me, that you might come to faith. The reason I do this, Jesus says, the reason I mention John's testimony, even though I'm not depending on it myself, is that I want you to be saved. I want you to believe what he said about me. Now, at first sounds rather egocentric. It appears a bit as if Jesus is on some kind of an ego trip here. People are not believing what he says about himself, and he gets a little ticked off, and so tries to convince them by quoting other authorities. But Jesus himself says, the reason I do this, the reason I'm anxious to establish my identity before you, is I want you to be saved. And I know that the only possible source of salvation is found in me. Unless you believe John's testimony about me, you can never be saved. You can never be delivered from the fear and the guilt and the anxiety and the boredom and the frustration of life. And I want you to be liberated from those things. And that's why I mention John's testimony, even though I don't believe it, or even though I don't depend on it myself. Now, he goes on to say that the Pharisees, for a while, actually rejoiced in the light that John was casting. It says he was burning and shining as a lamp, and you rejoiced in it. It's a very strong term in Greek. You exulted in it. You were excited about it. This suggests that uh, the Pharisees uh, were enthused about the ministry of John the Baptist when it first began. They recognized that here was a prophet from God who spoke the truth. Here was a lamp burning in a dark place. And Jesus says, for a while you were drawn to that light and willing to rejoice. But Jesus says you were only willing to do this uh, for a while. And I think the reason for that clearly is that when John the Baptist began saying awkward, uh, difficult, penetrating, convicting things, the Pharisees uh, packed their bags and left. That's when they cashed in their chips. As long as John said pleasant, pleasing things, they were willing to bask in the glow that was cast by his lamp. But as soon as he began to point the finger on the sin and the blackness in their own hearts, they got real jumpy. And that's when they cashed in their chips and went home. Now, the same thing is uh, true today, that many people are willing to bask in the light of the truth until Jesus begins to put the finger on some area of life which is awkward or difficult or very valuable or personal to them. And that's when they decide they've had enough of Jesus. 
We as a staff, uh, of course, marry many people. One of the first things we do when we are asked to perform a marriage is to sit down with the couple and talk to them about their spiritual life, try to discern where they are at spiritually. One of the reasons for this is that the Scriptures are very clear that a Christian is not to marry a non-Christian. And occasionally we'll have someone approach us, a Christian who will approach us and ask us to perform a wedding for them, and their plans are to marry a non-Christian, which we discover in the course of counseling with them. And of course, at that point, we feel like we must decline the invitation, and we explain to the Christian why this is the case. And we encourage them and challenge them to obey the teaching of the Lord, not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that's often a turning point in the spiritual lives of these people. They may, be, may have been willing to bask in the light of the Lord's lamp until that point. But when Jesus begins to meddle with things that are very personal, that's when they begin to change their mind. came across a, an entry that was written by a girl in her diary the day that she got married, and it illustrates this. She was a Christian girl planning to marry that very day a non-Christian. She says in her diary, Dear God, I can hardly believe that this is my wedding day. I know I haven't been able to spend much time with you lately with all the rush of getting ready for today, and I'm sorry. I guess, too, I feel a little guilty when I try to pray about all this since Larry still isn't a Christian. But, oh, Father, I love him so much. What else can I do? I just couldn't give him up. Oh, you must save him some way, somehow. You know how much I have prayed for him and the way we've discussed the gospel together. I've tried not to appear too religious, I know, but that's because I didn't want to scare him off. Yet he isn't antagonistic, and I don't understand why he hasn't responded. Oh, if only he were a Christian. Dear Father, please bless our marriage. I don't want to disobey you, but I do love him, and I want to be his wife. So please be with us, and please don't spoil my wedding day. Now, Ray Steadman paraphrased this letter to reflect what this girl was actually saying. Dear Father, I don't want to disobey you, but I must have my own way at all costs. For I love what you do not love, and I want what you do not want. So please be a good God and deny yourself and move off your throne and let me take over. If you don't like this, all I ask is that you bite your lip and say nothing and don't spoil my wedding day. Let me have my evil. But that's what Jesus recognized about the Pharisees and their response to the testimony of John, that they had ignored it. They had impeached it because he got a little too close to home. And for that reason, Jesus says, I don't depend on his testimony, but I have two other witnesses who are far more unimpeachable even than John the Baptist. You can ignore him, neglect what he says, but these other two witnesses are compelling. The first witness in verses 36 and 37 is God the Father. Jesus says, But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. Obviously, the most uh, curious phrase in these two verses is the last one where he says to the Pharisees, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Now, some commentators think that this is in the form of a rebuke that Jesus is saying to them, if your hearts were soft, you would have heard his voice 
If your hearts were soft, you would have seen his form. But I think what Jesus is saying is that God simply doesn't work that way. That is not how God the Father bears witness to his Son. He doesn't do so by audibly speaking to you, and he doesn't do so by appearing to you. John said in John 1 that no one has seen the Father at any time. And Jesus himself said in John 4 that God is a spirit, that God the Father is a spirit. So unlike some who teach that God has a body and therefore some kind of external appearance, Jesus was quite clear that God was a spirit and that no one has seen the Father at any time. Now this suggests, by the way, that all of the appearances in the Old Testament in which God is said to appear to people are appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ. It's the second member of the Trinity who appears to people in bodily form in the Old Testament because no one has seen God the Father at any time. Well, how is it then if God does not speak to people, if God does not appear to people, doesn't show up, how is it that God bears witness to his Son? Well, Jesus says he does so in the works that he has given me to do. The works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Jesus said God, the Father, has given him certain works to do. And this is the way that God bears witness to his Son that God has sent him by enabling Jesus to do things that no one had ever done before him and no one has ever done after him. And notice very clearly that Jesus says these are the works of the Father. These are not my works. These are not things that I am doing out of my own resources. But these are works which the Father has given to me. They are works that he does. Now, Jesus was very clear that all through his carnation, incarnation, the things that he did were done by the power of the Father who was resident within him. Now, Jesus was God all of the time he walked on earth. You can't stop being God once you are, even if you try. Part of the definition of God is that he is eternal. So Jesus, all the time he walked among us as a man, was God. But he tells us that he never once acted out of his own deity. He never depended upon his own resources as God to do the things that he did. All of his life was lived as an ordinary man humbly dependent upon the power of God at work in him. And so the works that Jesus did were not his own, not the expression of his own deity in action, but were the expression of the power of God his Father at work in him. And Jesus says to the one who is seeking the truth, these are enough to compel belief in me as the Son of God. He did things that no one else has ever done. We've seen some of them in this book already. In John 2, we saw that he turned instantly with a thought, 180 gallons of water, ordinary tap water, into 180 gallons of the finest wine in the land. In John 4, we saw that simply with a thought, he could heal a terminally ill son at a distance. No one's ever been able to do that. Even members of the medical profession, the most highly respected uh, professionals probably in our society, will tell you, if they're honest, that they can't heal anyone that all they can do is enable the body's innate restorative healing processes to work. The body itself is what heals. Doctors can't do that. But Jesus did. He could do that. No one's ever been able to do that before or since. We saw last week that he was able to enable a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years instantly to begin to walk, throw aside his pallet and his cot. 
In chapter 9, we'll see that he was able to touch the eyes of a man who had been blind since birth and enable him to see. In John 11, he spoke and Lazarus, the man who had been dead for four days, came forth. You ever seen anybody do that? No one's ever done that before. No one ever will do that again. And Jesus himself, even though he was placed in the ground, rose from the dead. It says in John 2, I will raise up the temple of my own body. No one's ever been able to do that before, bring themselves back from the dead, never to die again. And that's why we believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God. The things he did were things that he could only do if God the Father was resident within him. And if you're here this morning and you haven't placed faith in Christ, then that's why you should, because he did things that no one else ever could do or ever will do again. Now, by the way, this is how God is continuing to confirm his message to us today and to people around us. This is how he authenticates the gospel that we are seeking to communicate to people as we simply do the works that God has given us to accomplish, depending as Jesus did upon the power of God resident within us, not counting upon our own resources, not depending upon our own uh, willpower, our own reserve, our own personality, our own intelligence, but depending wholly upon the power of God to be released in us and out through us. In that way, the message that we are communicating to people in the office and in our neighborhoods will be confirmed, authenticated, as they see us do the things that man cannot do because God's power is at work within us. Those of you that have older children, I would be willing to bet that some of the friends of your children have never seen a happy marriage. Uh, I've got one friend whose teenage son has a number of friends, all of whom live in single-parent homes. Every single one of his friends lives in a single-parent home. And these, uh, these friends have never seen a happy-together home. They've never seen a successful marriage. Well, this is one of the works that God has given to us to do, to establish solid marriages where there is love and respect and trust and now God alone can pull that kind of assignment off. And what he asks us to do is simply not depend upon our own resources to pull this off, but to account quietly upon his life resident within us to do the work that God has called us to do. And that will bear testimony. It will confirm the message that we are trying to communicate to people around us. So that's the second witness, Jesus says. The Father has borne witness to me in the works that he has enabled me to do. Now the fourth witness in this passage is the Scripture. So John, Jesus himself bears witness to his identity. John the Baptist does. Thirdly, the Father does. And fourthly, the Scripture itself does. And you can see why these are greater testimonies than the testimony of John because they're divine in origin and divine in nature. Whereas John was a man, human testimony. Verse 38 and 39, And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. The first uh, word there in verse 39 could be translated as an imperative. It could be translated search the Scriptures because by form the words are the same in the original language. But it's pretty clear here that Jesus is making a statement of fact, that he is acknowledging that the Pharisees diligently examined and studied and searched the Scriptures. And this is true. Uh, David uh, Roper told me once that when he studied at, the, at Berkeley, he had rabbis who were professors in his seminary training there who knew, had memorized the entire Old Testament in Hebrew. Word for word in Hebrew now. They knew the entire Old Testament. 
This past week, some interns and myself were translating through uh, some sections in Genesis out of the Hebrew text. And there are a number of scribal notations in the margin. And these scribes, some of whom were Jesus' contemporaries, knew the Old Testament so well that they could tell you if this particular form of a word, of a verb or a noun, was the only place that this form occurred in the entire Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament well enough to know that this was the only place you would ever find this particular form. And they'd note that out in the margin. And they didn't have uh, uh, Apple two C's to track that down. That was simply the result of diligent study and diligent searching. And they could tell you which word in the book was the middle word in that entire book. They could even tell you which was the middle word in the entire Old Testament. They had diligently searched the Scriptures and they knew them. But Jesus says there was a fundamental error that was motivating them. He says the reason you do this is an error because you think that in them you have life. Jesus says it is an error. Now catch this. Jesus says it is an error to think that there is life to be found in the Scriptures. He says that's wrong. That's erroneous. You think, you suppose, and by this he's referring to their subjective opinion, you suppose that in them, that is in the Scriptures, you have life. But he says that's not the case. The Scriptures exist to bear witness to me. I'm the one in whom there is life. And unless the Scriptures point you to me, they are not accomplishing their purpose. I think this is something that we as evangelicals have to be conscious of. We have to be careful about this because we place a high regard in the Scriptures. I believe these are authoritative. I believe they're inerrant. But these represent the very thoughts of God about life and reality, that it's impossible to understand life and make sense of it without the revelation of the Scriptures. And yet Jesus says it's possible to be misled about the function of the Scriptures. I think what he's saying essentially is that the study of the Word never for us should be an end in itself. The mastery of the Scriptures should never be an end in itself or a goal in and of itself. Because the Scriptures, as authoritative and as inspired as they are, exist only to draw our attention to Jesus and to focus our attention on Him and to teach us to go to Him for the life that we need. I remember when I was uh, just graduated from college, I was doing a pastoral internship at a church in the Bay Area, and for the first time in my life, I had hours available each week to study the Scriptures. And I anticipated that, and I longed for that, and I did it. I applied myself diligently to search the Scriptures. I spent hours poring over it and translating it and meditating. And I found after a period of three or four months that my spiritual life had become very dry and barren, and even my motivation to open the Scriptures had begun to wane, and it was a chore to study. And one night, one of our other interns taught in our evening service on the letter in Revelation where Jesus rebukes the church for losing its first love. And I realized instantly what had happened to me, that I had allowed my love of the Scriptures to replace my love for Jesus. And any time that happens, you'll find that the vitality of your spiritual life begin to drain away. Now, that may be the reason that the study of the Scriptures is boring and rather humdrum for you is that you have not allowed the Scriptures to point you to Jesus, in whom alone there is life. Making the Scriptures, uh, the study of the Scriptures, and in and itself would be a little bit like being given directions to a beautiful buffet luncheon, lavish spread. And uh, let's say it was going to be held at the picnic ground up at the Schaefer Butte. And so you were told how to get there. And as you're driving up the road to Schaefer Butte, you see the road sign that says this way to the buffet. 
Now think a minute about how silly it would be to park your car there at that road sign, get every whole family out of the car, and sit around that little road sign waiting to be fed. Never would happen. Now the scriptures are like that road sign. They tell us where the banquet is. They tell us where the buffet is. They tell us where we can be fed. But in them, there is no life. Life is found only in Jesus. And the purpose of the scriptures is to change us, is to transform us. It's not simply to give us more knowledge. But our encounter with the scriptures should be one that affects the way we think, affects the way we trust Jesus, the way we regard him, and the way we live. And then it's doing its purpose, and not until. I remember uh, reading a story once about a very proper uh, aristocratic English woman who was vacationing in uh, the South Seas and some South Pacific Islands. She came across a native sitting in a loincloth on his haunches reading the Bible. And with a real tone of arrogance in her voice, she said, uh, you know, uh, we don't read that book anymore. And the native looked up at her very uh, quietly and said, well, lady, you're lucky that I do, because if I didn't, I would be eating you right now. <laughs> so that's the function of the Scriptures, to point us to Jesus so that he can change us and transform us. Now, why, if the Scriptures were like this, if they consistently bear witness to Jesus, and by the way, Jesus is saying the entire Old Testament speaks of me, bears witness of me, and I would encourage you to do this as you read through the Old Testament. Look for Jesus on every page. Read with, with those lenses on as you read the Old Testament. The interns have been going through the book of Leviticus in our Bible exposition class lately, and you will find no book in the world that is more boring if you do not look for Jesus in that book, it'll bore you absolutely to tears. But if you look for hints and glimmers of Jesus, the coming Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, if you look for that in that book, it begins to come alive and begins to breathe because Jesus is on every page. Now why, if the Scriptures are like this, if they consistently bear witness to Jesus, why is it the Pharisees don't buy it? what it says? And as Jesus tells us in verse 40, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. The problem, he says, is not that you cannot believe, but that you will not believe. And that's the reason, by the way, that, uh, that everyone who does not come to the gospel does not come. It's not because they cannot believe. It's that they will not believe. The problem in responding to the gospel is never intellectual. I would venture to say it is always moral. People are instinctively aware of the threat that the gospel poses to them. It's a bit like the creation-evolution issue. Now, evolutionists, uh, conventional evolutionists, believe that everything simply happened by chance, that the universe and its immensity and infinitude came into being wholly by chance. Now, they have no explanation, for instance, where that initial stuff came from that blew up into the universe. But it's far more rational to believe that an intelligent designer of infinite power brought it into being. It's far more consistent. It's far more defensible, rationally. It's much more logical. Well, why is it that people have a hard time believing that? It's because they're unwilling to. Not because they can't, but because they're unwilling. And that's, I believe, because people are instinctively aware of the threat that believing in a personal creator poses. All of a sudden, someone comes into the picture who might demand the keys to my life. And I will no longer be the one who is calling the shots in my own life. And Jesus says that's the problem. The condition of the heart is what makes the difference. The same sunlight shining on clay will harden it. The same sunlight shining on wax will soften it. 
So Jesus says the key in responding to the truth is the condition of the heart. Are we made of clay so that we become brittle and hard when exposed to the light? Or are our hearts made of wax so that the sunlight softens and melts? Now Jesus points out in verses 42 through 44, really 41 through 44, the basis for this stubborn unbelief, why it is that men are unwilling. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from men. That is what men think of me matters very little. But I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. In other words, I know you, Jesus says, you do receive glory from men, and therefore you cannot have the love of God in yourselves. You must choose between loving the glory of men or loving God. You cannot do both. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you shall receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? So the real reason for stubborn unbelief, Jesus says, is that men seek the glory of other men. That if what motivates us is a desire to achieve, desire to make some mark in the world, a desire to gain recognition or status or fame, if the thing that is motivating us is to impress people, make others sit up and take notice that we are here, Jesus says you cannot love God. You cannot both love God and the glory that comes only from Him and love at the same time the honor and glory that comes from men. This, has, this desire to seek the glory of men can have some humorous expressions. I've read that the latest status symbol among yuppies is uh, well-dressed kids that one of the growth industries in the uh, garment world now is expensive clothes for uh, kids. And the latest competition among yuppies is to see who can impress people the most with the wardrobe they're outfitting their children in. $480 uh, silk taffeta party dresses, for instance. Well, what's the motivation behind all that? Well, it's to impress people, to get others to sit up and take notice. And Jesus says, if that's what's motivating you, if that's your ambition, that sort of thing, it's the deadly enemy of the truth. And this, by the way, is what Jesus says makes people vulnerable to cults. It says in verse 43, If another shall come in his own name, you'll receive him. That is, if someone comes and his only credentials is what he says about himself, you'll buy it. You'll fall for it because you're seeking glory from men and not from God. And then Jesus concludes his message to the Pharisees by saying that he will not be the one to condemn them before the Father, but Moses will. Do not think that I will accuse you, in verse 45, before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What Jesus has in view here is that when the Pharisees stand before God, they will ask to be admitted into the kingdom on the basis of their loyalty to the Scriptures. They will point to the fact they were diligent students of the Word. And God will say to them, you missed the whole point. God will say to them, who did you think I was talking about when I referred to the seed of the woman who would destroy Satan in Genesis 3? And who did you think I was talking about when I mentioned the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12, in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed? Who did you think I was talking about when I set up the Levitical system, the sacrificial system, to be a type of the Messiah, the Lamb of God who was to come? Who did you think I was talking about when I referred to the prophet in Deuteronomy 18, to whom you were to listen? Who did you think I was talking about? 
and the Pharisees will simply have to hang their heads in shame. The thing in which they had set their hope, the Scriptures, became the very thing that condemned them because they had never come to the place of faith in Christ. And that's what I would like to conclude with this morning. If you are here this morning and you are a believer and have the same appreciation for the Scriptures that I do, I would appeal to you to study the Scriptures with a heart that's open to God, to ask Him what He wants you to understand about Jesus and about life with Him in the pages of the Scripture. Don't allow the Word to become an end in and of itself. And if you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus, I would remind you of the witnesses that Jesus has brought forward this morning. That He Himself said that He was the Son of the living God, the only one who could save and deliver. That John the Baptist and other righteous, godly men down through the ages have said the same thing. Perhaps even the person that's brought you this morning is saying that. Third, he says, God the Father Himself has borne witness that I am the Son of God by enabling me to do things that no man has ever done. And lastly, he said, the entire Scripture speaks of me. My name is written on every page. So I would appeal to you this morning, if you were here and have never placed faith in Christ, uh, to do it. There is uh, no time like the present to place your faith in Christ. David's going to come now and uh, lead us in a chorus, which I hope will express the prayer on each heart this morning. The song is, Open Our Eyes, Lord. And if you are here as a believer, uh, sing the song as a prayer that God will use the Scriptures to open your eyes to see Jesus. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer, but would like to be, then use this song as a prayer inviting God to open your heart and eyes to see Jesus as your Savior and Lord.